Prohibition, so misunderstood. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Joining us is Professor Richard Hamm. Thanks for joining us, Richard. I'm very happy to be with you. Happy to talk about alcohol prohibition. Okay. Richard Hamm is a history professor at the University at Albany who has studied prohibition for more than 35 years and is co-editor with Michael Lewis of a new book called Prohibition's Greatest Myths, The Distilled Truth About America's Anti-Alcohol Crusade. The book is published by LSU Press. The format of this book, as I understand it, is you publish a number of essays on prohibition chapters by uh, various scholars. That, that's correct, Bob. There are there are ten essays in there, uh, one by Michael and one by me also, uh, but eight other scholars. Um, some are political scientists, some are sociologists, most are historians, and the book is organized in. You know, it, it centers around national prohibition, but it goes back to the origins of temperance and comes forward to current uh, attitudes about drinking, how they relate to prohibition, and also marijuana prohibition. So it, it kind of sweeps through time in, in its um, – in its, uh, and they're, they're all short pieces, uh, tight pieces, and the whole book is under 200 pages. Okay. Now, in your chapter – you clarify the connections between prohibition and organized crime. Didn't prohibition lead to an increase in organized crime? Oh, indeed, it led to an increase in organized crime. There is no doubt about it. But there's a very common perception out there that prohibition started organized crime in the United States, and that it certainly did not. Um, organized crime certainly gets a huge impetus from prohibition, prohibition because, after all, you know, a new commodity that people want is is made illegal in many more places than it had been illegal, and it allowed um, the growth of an illegal market. And, of course, organized crime that had been already organizing, uh, especially prostitution, a little bit with drugs, but not as much, but especially prostitution and... and um, racketeering, that is, extortion of businesses, um, it moves into prohibition. More uh, striking is how much the federal government moves in policing in, in because of the creation of prohibition. And, and it, it's really kind of amazing when we think about it before prohibition, the most active federal law enforcement agency um, with the most number of agents doing the most work bringing people into jail were the postal inspectors, the huh. people who checked the mail for fraud, essentially. Um, and that was a, you know, that was a booming, booming business, uh, a bad business. Uh, people being duped by mail order, people being duped by false stock offers and stuff like that. Um, but prohibition, when it's created, it creates this prohibition bureau uh, within the Treasury Department. And even though it's slow, to, and they don't want to create a lot of officers, but its its initial staffing is three times the size of the FBI. Um, mm. It's gigantic. Uh, the FBI, by the way, had virtually nothing to do with the, the enforcement of prohibition. Uh, it stayed away from it because... Um, the director of the FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, saw that it was political dynamite, and he had finely tuned 
bureaucratic skills, survival skills, um, and he basically stayed away from prohibition enforcement, um, which kept the Bureau in good standing as enforcement uh, declined in, into abuse and corruption. One-third of the federal force was essentially um, forced out of service for uh, mostly for bribery or drunkenness on the job. This, you know, that does not speak very well for the federal enforcers. So who, who was um, enforcing the prohibition laws, and does that part of government still exist, or that law enforcement well, agency? I, <laughs> well, there is still the Bureau of Alcohol, <laughs> Tobacco, and Fire- Firearms, yes. But no, actually, you, you have to do two things. You have to realize the Prohibition Amendment splits enforcement. It gives a, it gives the second clause gives concurrent par- power to the states and the federal government to enforce the amendment. And the prohibitionists who created the amendment expected the states to do most of the work, um, and the states did do most of the work actually. The federal government created a Prohibition Bureau, but everybody else in the federal government was also responsible for uh, enforcing the law. I mean, that's, you know, basically how law enforcement works. So even even park rangers get in on enforcing the Volstead Act when people are, 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 um, you know, somebody's trying to sell liquor in a national park, for instance. So Mm. it, it truly empowered everybody. Um, the government has changed so much from it that there's no real carryover from that, mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. The, there, are two car- there are two huge carryovers. First of all, the federal government got directly involved a lot in policing, much more than it ever had been before. And, and secondly, the federal courts, which had mostly been forms for civil disputes between businessmen over business matters, became criminal courts. Um, more than half their workload turned to criminal court activity. And this is just a huge transformation. Uh, you read the papers of all the judges, and they're absolutely aghast at this. They don't know what to do about it, and they're overwhelmed. And they, you know, they're in the criminal court business, and they, and they have stayed in it ever since because the federal government then increases its criminal justice uh, profile in the American society. The funny thing of federal courts being come involved in criminal law is it leads to a whole lot of new constitutional law. So mm-hmm. all the kind of law we think of restricting um, searches and seizures, um, this kind of uh, you know the kind of stuff that you know, where you say oh no that search is illegal and therefore the evidence can't be used, that actually grows out starts really our modern conceptions of it in the prohibition era. Hmm. We're so talking with Richard really Ham. He is a co-editor of a, a book about prohibition, uh, prohibition's greatest myths. Uh, one, let me back up to the origin of prohibition. Uh, why did that become such an important policy goal for so many people? And, and it was an effort over many decades, right, that that brought about the uh, 18th nearly, Amendment? Nearly a century. Um, so, you know, the common myth is that prohibition suddenly, like a lightning bolt, comes out of the blue and is sparked by, you know, World War One or the rise of religious conservatives. Um, but, you know, as the essays in the book show, and as scholars have shown over the last 50 years, first of all, prohibition builds on an existing temperance movement, which is born in the, in the 18. 18- 
30s, 40s, and 50s, and this temperance movement is a real reaction to how much alcohol Americans drank um, in, in the antebellum period. So we measure alcohol consumption by pure spirit, so that 200 proof per capita. Um, and these are all, these aren't ballpark figures so much as these are figures subject to some debate, but basically we, we think around 1830s, uh, in the 1830s, Americans drank per capita 3.9 gallons of pure spirit a year. Now, that, that's, an, that's an awful lot. So today we drink about 2.3. Was this more than, let's say, Europeans were drinking or Asians, and, or don't we really know that? It depends on which Europeans. We don't know. The <laughs> figures on it, there's a, there's a lovely uh, world, world out there of cross-cultural study of drinking. Um, and, and, you know, it is always dependent on the records. Um, and so we don't have very much good, good uh, records for, for China or, or Japan, for instance. Um, but we have uh, pretty good records for, for Europe. And it depends on which Europeans, actually. Um, so some, some Europeans, say the Belgians, um, they drank more than the Americans. Um, the British probably drank less. It's important to understand there's a real transformation in drinking from, say, 1790 to, to, to 1820. And, and that is um, fermented beverages like... like um, ales and, and, and wine and, and uh, beer um, mm-hmm. and hard cider, especially in the American context, are replaced by, by um, distilled beverages, whiskey and gin and rum. Um, and when those first come into the market, um, they're drunk like beer. So, you know, a 12-ounce gin is, is a norm. Um mm. And it doesn't take very many 12-ounce gins to make you absolutely drunk, uh, dangerously drunk to yourself and to others. Um, it, it, the consumption levels were tremendously high. The culture of consumption, alcohol was everywhere in the society. You couldn't do a business deal without having some, some alcohol along. Workers were paid in alcohol sometimes. People drank on the job and every social occasion. The hmm. rise of temperance. Uh, is a rational response to this. And basically, temperance just people began to say, oh, all this alcohol is bad. Some of them would think of it for religious reasons, and they would, they, would try, they would abstain themselves, and they would try to convince others to abstain. Mm-hmm. We're talking again with Richard Hamm about not prohibition and its uh, origins. And uh, the other, not too long ago on the podcast, we, uh, I interviewed uh, Charles Postal. I don't know if you know him. He's a professor out in California about his book on equality. And he follows three organizations, including the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Um, for example, that was a really big deal, wasn't it? I mean, it, it became a more than a, um, a, a force for a prohibition or or temperance they took up, up a lot of causes it was a i don't know it, it was a major social organization indeed it was, it was it was probably the largest female social organization in the united states um and it's especially in the late 19th century 
it was very much interested in in all sorts of social reform under its charismatic leader, Francis Willard. Uh, Willard really um, pushes the WCTU into supporting uh, women's suffrage, especially uh, on a limited basis. They would call it the homes home protection suffrage. That is, women should vote on issues like, can your town have saloon? Women should vote on the school budget, that sort of thing. Things that were in the gendered role of women. But they were also involved in anti-prostitution work, and they were also involved in all sorts of social activity. And that probably, you know, speaks to one of the the great myths that's out there, that, you know, prohibition is led by social conservatives, religious conservatives, Really, prohibition was led, especially in the 19th century, uh, by uh, religious liberals, the ones Mm -hmm. who were embracing the social gospel, who were saying the church had to go out into the society, not the ones who were turning inward to say, we only care about ourselves and our salvation. It it was a far um, more liberal movement um, than uh, is commonly thought. Mm-hmm. Also, it, prohibition became an amendment to the Constitution. I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, there was an act, you've referenced it, the Volstead Act, which I guess set down the chapter and verse of what could and couldn't be done. But um, when did they start agitating, or the backers for it, start agitating for a, a constitutional amendment? Well, prohibition comes in fits and starts. So you have actually the first wave of state prohibition in the 1850s. Um, It's very short-lived, disappears in the Civil War. Prohibition agitation begins again uh, in earnest in the the 1870s and 80s. Um, And even then there are people calling for a national prohibition amendment. That goes nowhere. Um, But prohibition comes through the states. Um, and it comes in steps through the states. But there is an organization called the Anti-Saloon League, which will ally itself with the WCTU uh, by the 20th century. Um, And earlier prohibition agitation is kind of faltered by about the 1890s. The Prohibition Prohibition Anti-Saloon League comes in, and it's saying we'll do anything to support liquor, controlling liquor, and especially this institution called the Saloon. And we can talk about the saloon later. But what happens is they begin to dry out the states, first through local option and then through statewide prohibition, and then look for federal aid to help statewide prohibition, say, from interstate liquor shipments coming in. They get that legislation eventually, uh, first, uh, especially in 1913. And in 1913, they kind of look around and said, oh, wow, we overrode a presidential veto we have the votes for an amendment. We could make this pure. We could we could really get rid of alcohol in American society in the saloon. And that's when they begin their agitation. And, of course, it only takes four years from when they start to get the amendment passed through Congress. The ratification of the amendment is at lightning speed, less than a year. Um, and in, in part because this organization, the Anti-Saloon League, is is one of the first really truly effective single-issue lobbies. It is mm-hmm. the model of all later single-issue mm-hmm. lobbies. Um, that being said, the majority of the votes that are cast in, in the progressive era are for prohibition. It is democratically created, and it could have lasted forever, 
because it's very hard to repeal an amendment. So, you know, there's two parts of it. First, there is an amendment, and then amazingly later, it's repealed. Mm, Yeah, we'll get to that in a a moment. Richard Hamm is with us, co-editor with Michael Lewis of a new book, Prohibition's Greatest Myths, published by LSU Press. Want to put in a word for our GoFundMe campaign, which keeps the Historian's Podcast on the Internet. Uh, We have a link uh, to our GoFundMe uh, campaign on uh, bobcudmore.com, or you can send a check by mail to me, Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Richard Hamm is with us for talking about the coming and then the going of Prohibition, a new book. He's the co-editor. You uh, mentioned you wanted to talk more about the saloon. And the, what, what, what did that really imply in uh, the years before Prohibition? You know, it, there is a romanticized image of the saloon. And, you know, if you remember the old television show, Cheers, uh, it actually kind of ends its opening credits with a picture of an old saloon. And everybody, all the men in it are smiling and, and they are staring at the camera. Uh, it's, it's the working man's club. Um, the saloon actually was a new business model uh, brought to America in the 1870s. And it lasts right down to national prohibition, and it never comes back after national prohibition. It's a tied house system. Most saloons were like, it's not exactly a franchise uh, like McDonald's, but they're owned by an individual proprietor who actually gets his money from a brewer. And the brewer, the brewers of beer, um, supplied the glassworks, the bar utensils, uh, the chairs, the tables, the artwork, everything. Um, mm-hmm. In return, the only beer that uh, the saloon served was that beer. Um, so, you know, you had on choice on tap one beer or two beers from a brewer. That was it. Um, mm. The saloon it was a male place. Um, and that's mm-hmm. really important to understand because, you know, American society is severely <clears throat> gendered and men are presumed not to be as moral as women. So male spaces are immediately uh, not considered pure spaces. Um, uh, Political party places are also the same way. That meant that saloons were automatically disrespectful, and the drinking culture doesn't help. So So say any time in the 19th century we went out to drink, say four of us went out to drink, Mm-hmm. The the way we drank was each one of us stood around. Each one of us paid for a round or bought a pitcher for the table. If if somebody else bought a second round, that meant all of us had to buy a round uh, again. So we just went, if there were four of us, we just went to eight drinks. It was very hard not to drink to inebriation. It was hard not to binge drink under the system. Mm-hmm. Plus, it was a place where men felt that they did not have to obey uh, the gendered rules. Lisa Anderson, in, in in the book, she has this wonderful section. She said, you know, I've been studying these pictures of the old saloons, and, you know, I, you know, I can't figure out why they creep me out. She said, and, and then it finally came to me. The men all have their hats on in the pictures. Mm-hmm. And nothing shows 
uh, contempt for social norms uh, of polite society more than sitting <laughs> inside with your hat on. Time is rushing, though, uh, uh, Richard. Um, let me ask you about the repeal of prohibition, that after 13 years, it's repealed. How did that come to be? Well, you certainly shouldn't think of the idea that prohibition was a failure. It does really reduce consumption rates considerably. We, best estimates are it probably con- cuts consumption rates in half. Um, and we get that from, you know, figuring out rest for drunkenness, deaths from cirrhosis of the liver, and what the per capita consumption of alcohol was before and after prohibition. Uh, it creates a, almost a whole generation of people who never drink, um, who never, you know, that's really possible for many places in the middle of the society. Certainly, though, prohibition is unpopular, and it's being nullified in places where alcohol is po- popular, so in places like New York and Maryland, um, you know, prohibition really is not functioning very well at all. Um, but what kills prohibition are two things. First, the coming of the Great Depression, because the prohibitionists had tied their amendment to the prosperity of the 1920s and claimed that it had everything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, when that disappears, that argument goes away. Hmm. Prohibitionists also refuse, in the face of better organized opposition, this uh, organization for the repeal of the Prohibition Amendment, um, which is, a, you know, a led led by businessmen, a real, you know, people like the DuPonts are leading this organization. And basically, they're beginning a repeal campaign, and the prohibitionists won't compromise. And so with a clever campaign building on the prohibitionist strategies of single-issue pressure, um, there is a movement for repeal. They put pressure on the political parties. They get both parties to agree to considering kind of a referendum on prohibition through an amendment. And they get the 21st Amendment passed through Congress, and then through special conventions instead of the state legislatures, um, mm-hmm. it, is, it is repealed uh, almost in record speed, almost as fast as the Prohibition Amendment was passed. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable story of political mobilization, but the timing is critical because of the Great Depression. And does the saloon then not come back, or the what comes back does, to serve the alcohol? The saloon does not come back. Um, there are distinct steps to keep the saloon from coming back, uh, and we're all familiar with them. Uh, you have state liquor authorities that control um, the saloon, the, the, the liquor uh, selling in any state. You have, many states took the, the control of liquor right into their own hands with state, state authorities, um, for instance. But other, the almost uniformly, states banned the Tide House system. They banned this vertical integration where the brewers could control the saloons directly. Uh, they kept them as small places. Plus, during Prohibition, the culture changed. One of the great ironies, I mean, you've mentioned the WCTU and their organization against it and this, this gendered idea that women are against alcohol. One of the great ironies of Prohibition is that it legitimated uh, women's drinking. Women went mm. to speakeasies. Women didn't go to saloons. So when bars come back, they come back mostly as places that are mixed gender. Um, Hmm. 
It's not the same place, and it does not come back with the same emphasis on um, heavy drinking, uh, male-only drinking, uh, flouting the social norms. Um, so, it, it, yeah, the saloon is it, the saloon truly is dead. Mm. Uh, would uh, America have been better off to continue prohibition? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm a historian. <laughs> Not the future. All right. Well, let me ask you this. We only have a few minutes left. Let me ask you this, Richard. Right now we're rushing to make marijuana legal. Does the experience of prohibition have any uh, anything to say about that? Not, not, yes and no. The the there are this is marijuana and alcohol are a, a funny comparison of certainly the people who want to um, decriminalize or or actually make uh, marijuana legal have always argued um, since the 1970s that you know this is just the carrying on of prohibition and and it can be repealed repealed just like you know prohibition will be repealed and all will be okay um, that's really false analogy um, because um, we don't have uh, first of all marijuana has never been as ingrained in American culture as alcohol was um, you know I, I don't see any passages in the Bible that talk about consuming uh, marijuana but there are right. in the Bible about consuming wine uh, uh, wine is part of the communion it, it, it's it's also there are lots of models for uh, acceptable, legitimate use of alcohol that existed before prohibition and, and, and reemerged after prohibition. There aren't such models for, for, for marijuana. Marijuana was first kind of a marginally used substance in American society. Then it was criminalized in the states and then criminalized by the federal government and, and stigmatized. Um, through long campaigns of anti-drug uh, drug messaging. And there is no, uh, no image of a, a, how do I want to say, responsible marijuana user. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't think the lessons, I don't think the lessons are, are that good. However, some of the lessons apply. Um, the idea of strictly regulating it and strictly taxing it. Uh, Certainly that is drawn from the alcohol experience. The experience of not allowing Tide House saloons, that too is drawn from the alcohol experience. Um, You know, and when when we measure the ill effects of of marijuana on the body from alcohol, um, probably marijuana comes out ahead. Um, though, you know, honest to God, putting hot things down your lungs is not a good idea, period. <laughs> right. Um, we, we, again, we're almost uh, out of time. With your topic of, of organized crime during Prohibition, did that lessen or grow after after Prohibition? It shifted. Um, you know, I always try, I mean, you have two problems in trying to track what happens to organized crime after Prohibition. Um, so first of all, um, you know, say you have the syndicates that grow uh, smuggling uh, liquor from Canada or, or a, and selling it in an urban area. Um, they lose that livelihood almost overnight. 
Um, and so what they what they do is they they expand into some you know still illegal areas like gambling. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, they see a new opportunity in the growing uh, legitimization of unions, and a lot of organized crime begin to infiltrate unions to steal their pension funds, uh, to run extortion scams through them, um, to essentially, um, you know, you know, be a parasite upon society. Richard Hamm is a history professor at the University at Albany, Prohibition's Greatest Myths, published by LSU Press. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore.